Most women who menstruate dread the pain they experience during the first few days of their periods. It is during these days that the stomach cramps get unbearable and all that the body wants to do is curl up on a cozy bed. Turns out that historically, many communities around the world had specialized this bodily function and integrated it within their architecture in the form of menstruation huts, often leading to the isolation and oppression of women as impure beings. Our guest today offers a slightly different perspective to look at the menstruation rooms. She argues that these spaces in the West African Benin Kingdom were intentionally designed for women to rest and recuperate. The isolation rooms were basically spas. So, with the support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts, we have with us today fellow Graham grantee, artist Mine Atairu. I am Vaishnavi Shukla and this is Architecture of Center, a podcast where we highlight contemporary discourses that shape the built environment but do not occupy the center stage in our daily lives. We speak to radical designers, thinkers and change makers who are deeply engaged in redefining the way we live and interact with the world around us. Let's just start with like the absolute absolute basics because this is something that I had to educate myself mm-hmm. on and I'm sure not a lot of people know about it but if you could just tell a little bit about like a give an elevator pitch history <laughs> on the Benin kingdom it's it's people it's social hierarchy it's architecture I know that's a loaded question yeah so the Benin kingdom is a pre-colonial West African state Um, that existed until about the late 19th century when the British Empire colonized the area. So, but prior to colonization, the kingdom was centered around the monarch who is known as an Oba, and Oba is a Benin word for king. Mm. And so it was such a centralized power system where he had control over every facet of society And so where the Benin bronzes come in is he was also in the art making space. He was also considered the sole commissioner of the arts, particularly if you were producing something in a material that was not common to the land or was not native to the land. And so the Benin bronzes, the bronzes that were used to make the Benin bronzes, most of them were imported into Benin. Some of them were purchased from communities around the West African coast. And then later on, as trade expanded in Benin Kingdom, we started collecting and purchasing from the Portuguese. And so once the Oba purchased these bron- um, the bronze material, he would store it in his palace, basically a storage. And that was the only way as an artist that you would get access to the material bronze to then make a bronze item. And so that's how the Alba monopolized, particularly the making of items in bronze. But later on, fast forward into the future towards the colonial era, we were also producing palm products, which was in high demand in Europe at the time because it was the industrial era as well. And so it was high in demand for the for soap making, production, uh, margarine, machine lubrication as well. But because, as I mentioned earlier, the king monopolized every facet of society, including trade, 
He would open and close markets whenever he wished. He would raise taxes whenever he wished. It was not a very conducive, you know, space to do trade, especially if you were traveling all the way from Britain, which is not an excuse for colonization because we know the reality of colonialism is extraction, especially without paying communities, um, the, you know, colonized community. And so because it was, as the British say, very difficult to do trade, a lot of other things happened. Eventually, the British uh, Empire sent an army to invade Benin, colonize the kingdom, torch the palace, depose the king, exile the king, stole over 4,000 objects, which were later exported to Europe, sold to various institutions and private collectors. The largest collector of the Benin bronze we know today is the British Museum, which we talked about earlier. And then from there, it was also distributed to other institutions across the world. So at least 160 museums across the world have one Benin bronze. And it may not be like, you know, a full on sculpture. It could just be like, they, cause it was just like, it's weird the kind of things they collected. Some institutions just have like scraps. It's just like a scrap of metal, but they collected anything. So that counts as a Benin bronze and yeah. We're actually here to talk about something very fascinating that's part of your research project within the Benin kingdom. And mm -hmm. since this season focuses on broadly the themes of care and health and uh, contextualizing it within the larger discourse of what we as a society you know look at as beyond just like healthcare as one word or medicine or whatever um mm -hmm. your your particular project which is also funded by the Graham foundation is looking at uh, the menstruation isolation rooms or menstruation huts and the moment i read read your proposal it it struck a chord because this is something we are familiar with as well in india because a mm -hmm. lot of traditional Indian societies, a uh, lot of tribal settlements, even till date, have menstruation huts for women. And this is something, I mean, of course, as time goes and as generations are no longer around us, the idea is becoming a little more obsolete. But in the most rural parts of India, they still have communal menstruation huts. Now, for people who don't know what menstruation huts are, these are essentially huts or rooms which are typically constructed out of the house, of the main house, or at a community level outside of the main settlement or dwelling places where women who are menstruating for whatever, five to seven days a week go and live in because of whatever ideas of the society's back then, whether it has to do with menstruating women being impure or, you know, them being considered as polluting or whatever that is but this is something that you found in your primary research something that existed even within the Benin kingdom so what was that about and how how did you just come across this yeah that's that's a good question so I was um, researching architecture in Benin something very unrelated to like menstruation huts but then I came across this paper which I sent to you and I saw this little diagram showing uh, a chief's, like just the design of a chief's house in pre-colonial Benin and the menstruation hut that, women's would, that women would usually isolate during their period. So that's how the research started. But a primer, so 
in Benin Kingdom, at least every Benin woman, once you start menstruating, there's this law we know that if you are menstruating or a woman, you probably don't want to go. And this is like our primer. Um, go to the king's palace because they say there's a part of the king's palace that if you access, then you will continue to menstruate forever. But it's just a way of preventing women from like circulating the king's, you know, space. So that's where it's all started for me. What I found more interesting in in the way you you describe it is quite contrary to the way it is perceived, right? So. Um, in India, even if you read a lot of literature on menstruation huts or menstruation room, it has to do with terrible living conditions. In fact, there are reports of women being bit by snakes in tribal areas and actually dying of snake bites because these menstruation huts don't have the kind of infrastructure that is conducive to healthy living, at least during mm-hmm. those few days. Um, the way you look at it is was quite radical and I was like hmm maybe maybe there's some (laughs) stuff to dig here because you said these are actually places of self-care and the way you frame it is almost like these spaces had a potential of I don't know like fostering a certain kind of sisterhood of sorts or really looking at these these rooms or menstruation hearts as potential places of acting as a spa what is that about? I mean, it's a thought exercise, I know, but... It's a, it's a research in progress. So the first diagram I found, and so far, what I know about menstruation huts in the Benin context is that they aren't structures that live outside of the family complex. They're built into the living space, but then the living space itself is sectioned into a woman's quarters, and then the menstruation hut is then um, placed towards the end. So every Benin um, like architectural complex will have like the front entrance and the back entrance, especially for the women to access the hut when they're menstruating so they don't have to go through the front. But I was also very interested in the menstruation hut as a spa because in Benin, like women aren't, And I guess this is the case for a lot of communities that in pre-colonial times or what we know about the literature we read, um, which is not written by us, but by someone else, is that women were isolated. They were not active participants in politics and much of their life is dedicated to caring for the family and cooking and cleaning and wiping after men. But during this time of menstruation, they are then not required to do all of that housework. This gives them time to yourself, to commune and convene and to think and to just care for yourself. Like it's during that period that you're braiding your hair. It's during that period that you're, you really have time to just be you without the burden of the patriarchy. I mean, I was very young and, you know, when puberty hits and you have your first period, you know, it's in a lot of Indian culture, it's almost like a moment of celebration, you know, when the mm-hmm. family or the your mother would usually be like, okay, now you're not a girl, you're a woman mm-hmm. now. I, I remember having this conversation, I think it was with my mother a long time ago, she used to mention how in, in those few days of the month, a uh, lot of Indian households have like shrines and mm-hmm. temples, right? So where you would go and pray that women are not allowed to enter those sacred spaces mm-hmm. in the house or even for that matter uh, use the kitchen during those those few days and 
her way to talk about this was to kind of justify and and include this as part of an overall myth making where by creating these barriers much like what you said creating these barriers to entry into certain mm-hmm. spaces you're actually creating or carving out time for women to rest because i mean let's let's agree all, all the earlier like older societies were uh, places and households were places where women were restricted to domestic work and so by limiting their entry into these spaces you were limiting the the work that they had to do and allow them to get dressed during those those periods and it made me i mean i was thinking about that while uh, preparing for for our talk today is like okay maybe there had to be a little bit of myth making in order to to ensure that the purpose of these menstruating huts as places for self care or as or as spas like you mentioned that that could be made made possible i'm not sure if in the in your research till now if there has been any evidence of self care or of i don't know testimonials where people said yes like they did get the time off during those few days of the week or i don't know what the physical infrastructure of menstruating huts really looked like right and that's what my research is about i'm going to i haven't traveled to nigeria yet so i'm going to nigeria to see if there are any existing huts what they look like what implements or tools that women might have used and what that tells us about self care within that space are there any that are existing right now i am not sure <laughs> i am not sure probably in more of the rural areas because they are for example the diagram that you saw that building is still in existence because they tried to preserve it so i'm sure the hut is there but i don't know if the women use it to talk about your methodology a little bit how uh, so you've done a little bit of archival research what does field work look like field work involves visiting first um the house of the chief that's still in place and it was built during the pre-colonial era so we know that the house of menstruation is still in existence so visiting there to see what that space looks like if there are any implements or tools and if the chief because the chief still lives in the structure so to ask his wives if they still use it and i'm sure there's a lot to learn from them even if they don't because they have you know intergenerational knowledge and whatever um oral history exists in that space are there uh i don't know like any direct descendants of the king that are still alive oh yeah we still have so the alba is still like the monarchy is still very much alive and well and it was um reconstituted in 1914 um that's 14 years after the exile of the king they had to reconstitute the monarchy because benin was such a complex political system prior to colonialism and they found that it was very difficult to work with the british mode of like operating the kingdom so they had to restore the monarchy the king is still there but that's the pro- so i mentioned earlier that i can't or at least my dad would just lose his mind if i attempted to go <laughs> go into the king's palace because of this myth we have about women accessing a palace and the fact that you would menstruate for the rest of your life if you do um and that so that prevents women from just i don't know what it is i've never been to the palace for that reason only men are allowed to go there at least my brothers have been and the men oh like in all of the palace i have never been because of this Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because they say they say well they say we don't know where this what exact 
where the exact location is of this space where if a woman stepped on, upon, she would menstruate up for the rest of her life. So you probably shouldn't go in to the gates. I would love <laughs> if, if somebody could like, you know, if, if we could dig into how this the story or this legend came about because it seems like it, it it has i mean there's a lot of things that could happen if you go into a forbidden place right like but the fact that you could <laughs> menstruate for the rest of your life if you entered a, a palace just seems very very specific yeah so i mean ideally if as a woman you wanted to access the palace you probably want to have maybe a princess or whoever, other women who live there, so they can direct you towards the path that's not forbidden. That would be a way for you to access it. And I don't believe in all of these things, but it just makes my family feel, you know, better. <laughs> and so everybody doesn't go berserk if I, you know, do something crazy. But also to respect the culture, because I think that's important, um, regardless of what my beliefs are. I mean, up until I really read up on this and you know so ingrained even in the Indian culture and then once I got in it seems like it's it's a fair fair part of a lot of uh, southeast culture so you have menstruation huts up in the northeast of India you have some in Nepal a lot of them still still active and alive in rural areas but up until there I never really connected the idea of menstruation as something that would have an implication and manifest itself as a physical space, right? I could never connect the idea of female health to architecture. And then suddenly when you look at hearts, you're like, oh, I mean, there was a way that somebody created a space that directly correlated to women's health and thought of constructing it, like not just metaphorically, but like physically constructing a space. And I don't think it's even to think about it in like modern day and age seems obtuse because you have women menstruating day in and out. But apart from a sanitary disposal bin in the women's washroom, there's there's not much that you see as... I'm sure there, there, there's stuff, but I just don't know about it. Like I don't know what the current modern day healthcare discourses on menstruation i don't do, do you know of anything that comes like as a contemporary equivalent um not much um, just basically what you said but like something i wanted to point out also about my research because i'm also very interested in looking at other knowledge systems is that in colonized communities especially somewhere like benin which is a case i'm studying a lot of what we know about ourselves are written by the people who colonized us, right? Or are written by foreign researchers who came to Benin with this sense that if a woman is isolated in a room, she's an oppressed woman. And so that room is basically a prison or whatever else is it could look like to, say, a Westerner who sees someone being locked up in a space as a prison, whereas in our way of just in our knowledge system, it could be the opposite. And so what are other ways of thinking? That's where it also started. What are other ways of thinking about the menstruation hut that has not been written by a Western researcher or has not been hinted at in another, you know, literature? Because not much is known about the hut. If I continue to apply these theories that exist in other centers, especially in the West, to 
a place that they don't fully understand and to a culture that they don't actually believe in and that a culture that they've tried to like, you know, wipe away for such a long time, then how can we, how much can we truly know about ourselves? And that's why I'm going to the field to do more oral history, to visit the sites and start thinking of writing about it based on, you know, what I can find. Yeah, so based on empirical evidence rather than like a colonial narration. I love it because there's been plenty of stuff written on colonizing brown, black and brown bodies, right? On how they were used for labor in India, of course, used for farming, cultivation of um, opium and anything like from right from cotton to uh, grains to everything. And of course, US has a history of uh, using the black body in the in the fields. Okay, now it makes sense. What I did not think about was even the way history is written from that colonial lens runs the risk of portraying the female body and its functions as something that is perpetually oppressed and not giving it the chance to be seen as something that is in fact working in the benefit of women that is very interesting i i I did not connect the points like i did not think of it as something that could have been a colonial construct you you take it as it is right until you start questioning and so i would i would really be interested in seeing how how this changes and how this shapes up once you've done your field work. It's almost like you've done more work. (laughs) (laughs) But also when you're looking at against the grain rather than taking it top down as somebody's reading of a space that exists. But if I were to push you a little bit more and, and just think through it almost as like optimistic black mirror view, if we had to look at menstruation huts or menstruation rooms today or in the future what do you think they could look like do you think spaces like these have have the potential to to exist in our day-to-day lives or do you think it's it's an infrastructure of the past and that it's something that just will be found in texts and historical unesco sites as like oh when you're going on a tour you show a tourist like oh this used to be a menstruation house <laughs> something that doesn't exist anymore i mean i say like during my period i think i i have at least like 24 or 48 hours of just like rolling in my bed and being lazy and losing my mind because I'm in so much pain. And it would be nice to have a space where other menstruating women, I don't know how that would function in reality, but people who are experiencing the same, um, I don't know, cramps, what, where, where could we gather and how could we convene and just ease our pain and... I don't know, live through this natural phase of being a woman. Um, I do see it in the future. It's possible. I just don't know how it would operate, but it's possible. I know sometimes when I'm at work and I'm having cramps and my colleague is having cramps and we're just there drinking coffee and talking about it. I mean, it would be nice to have like a much larger space with a registration system where you could go when your period starts, maybe the first two days when you're losing your mind. I love it. It's like, it's a startup idea right there, <laughs> like creating a sorority or <laughs> just people who menstruate, you know, whatever body they, they live in. But yeah, why not? 
since you're going to go on your field study um what does the future of the project look like and what is the potential outcome of of this research if you've given it any thought no pressure i mean the so the research is interdisciplinary it's it's like this intersection of architecture and also researching doing object research so when i learn more about the menstrual hut as an architecture and as a space that women used you know to care for themselves what objects from the Brilliant Bronze collection particularly the domestic objects that most museums don't have information about that are just simply labeled as cups and bowls and very random names generic names that we don't quite understand what they were they were used for so how can we associate those domestic items within the billion bronze corpus to the menstrual room so that we better we can better understand domestic items in the billion bronze corpus because if you don't know much about the billion bronze corpus billion bronzes is just it's an art historical category that refers to these objects that were stolen most of most items in the objects are not actually in the collection are not actually made of bronze it's made of the items made of wood, um, copper, I was saying, terracotta, yeah. iron, copper, various items. And so, especially items that are not made in bronze, not much is known about the non-bronze items, particularly the domestic ones. I'm very interested to understand how women use those domestic items in the menstrual hut, if it was even used. Well, I think maybe we'll have part two to this episode once you've you've done your field work but i really just wanted to get the conversation started because while you're looking at health and care and it's difficult to not talk about female health like reproductive health or and part of it of course is menstruating of of people and it's, so it just seemed like such a direct connection between between the body and a space beyond just using a washroom you know as a space that was just like carved out for a specific reason for rest for recuperation for being at ease so thank you for getting the conversation started i must say that <laughs> mhm you're welcome and thank you for inviting me yeah and and thank you the graham foundation for making this happen <laughs> special thanks to ayushi thakur for the research and design support and kahansha for the background score You can follow us on Instagram at arcofcenter and reach out to us through our website arcofcenter.com that is a r c h o f f c e n t r e and thanks for listening